The kettle's boiled, Vic. Great. Perfect timing. Just a dash of milk for me, please, mate. Here you go. Shall we get started, then? Have you ever woken up on a Sunday morning and said, I'm never drinking again, and then found yourself waving 50 bucks at a barman by happy hour? Are you wondering why everyone else can stop at one, while you head to a dodgy after-party with a weird bloke called Disco Dave? If so, it might be time to take a deeper look at your relationship with your reliable social crutch, alcohol. On each episode, we'll investigate our own dysfunctional dealings with booze and find out if it's possible to stop this deeply ingrained habit before things get too messy. Yep, we're going to open up a shame shed of humiliating drinking stories to help you understand why waking up from a booze coma each weekend with a kebab sticking out of your top pocket might actually be negatively impacting your health. Hamish and I are here to delve into what it's like being sober, an unwanted warts and all look into why giving up those cheeky pints or putting down those mummy wines will make you feel happier, help your anxiety and mental health and turn you into the most sparkly authentic version of you. Won't that mean I become boring though, Vic? Well, Hamish, we'll just have to wait and see. I'm Victoria Vanstone. I'm Hamish Adams-Cairns. And this is Sober Awkward. Yeah, so I've received another message from Alan on his football trip away. Okay, yeah. enlighten me. The last one was him, where was out, he? He ran out, he spent all his money in on half pickled, of his budget in yeah. a supermarket on all sorts of crap. Pickled eggs and yeah. stuff, yes. So this message, all it says is, 10 blokes in a hotel lift designed for five. I got kicked out of the lift and my trousers fell down. That is literally, <laughs> I've had two messages from him. And that is the second one that I've got. Kicked out because he was like... No idea. That's all it says. I got kicked out. My trousers fell down. <laughs> it sounds like fat shaming to me. I mean, they've gone, they've looked around and gone, all right, you, out. Yeah. <laughs> There's not enough space. Sounds in like he's yeah. maybe getting bullied. Do you mind to check in on him? Yeah, I've checked in on him. He doesn't answer me back. I respond and say, are you okay? What do you mean you've been chucked out of lifting your f- trousers fell down? But I don't hear anything in return. No. I just have to presume he's alive and he's, he's well. cryptic, isn't he? He he's leaves so a lot cryptic. unsaid. Yeah. Uh, how are you anyway? Are you good? I'm very well. well you, you've been away, haven't you, Vic? Yeah, I just went to Fraser Island actually for four days. It was lovely. It had perfect weather. The interesting thing was that we sat by the pool and... I did. I felt like a bit of a Billy No Mates because people on holiday, it's that thing. They were just drinking from morning until night. Yeah. And trays of drinks going past my eyeline back and forth all day. Mm. And I did. I, I didn't feel like I had a craving, but I did definitely feel like the odd one out. Felt like you're missing out or feel like you were just... No, because I don't want to drink anymore. It's not that. I'm not missing out, but I just feel like the odd one out. Like if I was to strike up a conversation with somebody next to the pool, they would probably say, well, why aren't you drinking? Like It felt like everybody was getting stuck in. There were a few weddings going on there as well. So it just felt like a real boozy environment. I felt proud still that I wasn't digging in, but I also felt, gosh, I'm a bit of a weirdo. Well, I think it's, it's quite reassuring to hear that you still have that feeling, really, because I think people might beat themselves up in their sobriety for still having that feeling. Yeah. And you're years in and still there's a part of you, you know, and actually, funny enough, we went to the cricket, you said, God, part of me still wants to like yeah. have a beer with everyone like that part never dies you know it's that even fitting in almost isn't it yeah. it's that fitting in feeling of being part of something whereas now I'm part of something else which is a sober world but there is still always a little inkling I think for every sober person they wouldn't say like they were sitting next to a pool on a hot day and somebody with a tray of c- cold beers with condensation running yeah. down the side you know that you would crave it even though you don't want it there's a still a tiny part of me that goes oh that'd be nice but I know I'd whip one down my neck in one gulp and then I'd be like you know being a knob yeah <laughs> I know you would be too have you had a craving since you gave up not really I and mean, I've spoken on the podcast about that day that I rented the car of course yeah and so that was like a holiday and I was stressed and it was sundowner drinks so yeah like, yeah that was my hardest moment so far but I haven't I felt like I've I've definitely felt like I'm missing out at times mm. but not so much like a craving not like a you know where it just takes over your whole mind you can't think of anything else I yes. haven't had that yet I, it might come but I kind of been rewarding myself for not having that so I feel quite good about the fact it hasn't come 
it's funny you, you talk about it like it's an outside force, which is yeah. something we're going to talk about today, which of course isn't the fact. It's you creating the craving, which makes it sort of go into your head. It's not that bolt out of the blue. Yeah. And it's brilliant that you say that, Hamish, because you make it sound like it's something you can't True. control. I know it is, because I have actually, cravings for chocolate and Biltong. Yes. And I, I can't Biltong. drive past... I can't... There's, there's a South African shop here. Yeah. I, honestly, I can't drive past it without going in. Yeah. The other day, funny enough, the guy that sells the Biltong, yeah. we were in the, in the plaza. Biltong, which, for people that don't know, is like dried meats. Yeah, it's a South African <laughs> delicacy. And he was in the plaza, which is not where the Biltong shop is. Yes. And I saw him and I said to Liz, I know that man. I don't know. I see him all the time. I don't know many people up here. Yeah. I see him all the time. It must be, I don't work with him. I, I don't, who is he? Four hours later, I was like, it's the Biltong man. I see him <laughs> as much as I see my own family. <laughs> You have like a friendship with the Biltong yeah, man. Steve, Biltong Steve. That is so funny. I read online somewhere this week that there are lots of odd things that people crave, which is kind of what we're going to be talking about okay. today. And those bolts out of the blue, Hamish. Funnily enough, some people eat sawdust like you eat Biltong. Okay. Some people stop at the sawdust shop and eat the sawdust. That is a thing people crave. Just licking the floors of Bunnings. Yeah, Yeah. and people crave chalk and mud from the garden. People eat mud. Yeah, it's like an addiction. And others like licking talcum powder. Wow. Sniffing furniture polish is another one. And one woman in the UK ate over a thousand sponges during her pregnancy and still craved them after giving birth. Like washing up sponges. Yep, I bet she had to soak up a bit of shtick after that. Very good. Oh, <laughs> I bet she absorbed a few sick oh, jokes. No. Oh, oh, no, she's on a roll. I hope it didn't rub off on her kids. Am I getting anywhere with these no. sponge-related no. jokes, Hamish? No, it's good, though. Pretty good. Because <laughs> what I'm saying is there's loads of weird cravings in the world. It's not just alcohol. And we feel like they're bolts out of the blue, like you say. Is there anything in particular you crave, Hamish? Heavy petting than a bacon sandwich. Oh, oh that's lovely. And biltong. And biltong. Yeah. yeah. Actually, Hamish, this kind of is what we're talking about today with the help of a special guest. Yes. Today we are talking about cravings and I'm so excited to welcome William Porter back on the podcast. We don't normally have guests on Sober Awkward, but when Vic and I stumble into a topic that stumps us... Don't bring my stump into this. Thank you very much. <laughs> and we bring in the experts. William Porter is the author of the amazing book, Alcohol Explained. And last time Vic and Lucy had him on Sober Awkward, he broke down the day in the life of the overdrinker. It was one of our most popular episodes. His explanation on how cravings work was so insightful and mind-blowing that today we want to go deeper and dig into that one somewhat confusing yet important role cravings play in sober life. Yeah, and especially seeing as it's nearly Christmas, we want to give you an insight into those feelings and how to avoid them. The science behind problem drinking has fascinated me ever since I quit, mostly because there are times that I desperately wanted to stop drinking, but I couldn't achieve it. Why was this? I didn't feel like an addict. Yet, if I did want to slow down, cravings to drink obscured my good intentions. And it was the craving that had me reaching in the fridge for a bevy. Now, I know we call Haim the normal drinker, and even he still feels cravings creep up on him sometimes. So I guess the need to drink encompasses everyone, because if there was no need, no one would do it. That's right. I think all people that have ever drunk, be it problematic or not, have felt the urge to consume alcohol. I know I crave a cold beer on a hot day, or a wine at sunset, a bubbly on Christmas morning. All associations that created this need in me a need I more often than not chose to fulfil. I wonder, are these feelings like bolts out of the blue? Was habit forcing my hand? Or was there something in my brain that I could have controlled? Could I have avoided some of those awful hangovers? Well, it's the million-dollar question, Hamish. Can people learn to control cravings? Just a quick heads up, this episode was one of the first that we've ever done remotely. And in case you didn't already know... Vic and I are not the most tech-savvy people. We are not. We are useless. We were ripping our hair out. Pulling our hair out would be an understatement. We were ripping (laughs) our hair out. There was a lot of connection issues. There was a lot of microphone issues. We nearly had to can the whole thing. So the audio quality is not the best, but the content... Oh, the content is so good. It's worth it. So so stick in there. And I'm sorry if it's not the perfect audio, but it is worth you gritting your teeth through. How would you describe a craving, William? 
Um, a craving is basically a very strong desire for something, and it kind of suggests it's sort of overwhelming, something that completely, you know, something you, you can't easily handle. It's something that really overpowers you. So that can be for anything, not particularly alcohol. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, the, the process, we, we quite often talk about triggers and people quite often talk about avoiding triggers. But I think it's important to understand the thought process from start to finish. The trigger is something that puts the thought of an alcoholic drink in your head. Hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean a craving. So, you know, I spend, I don't know, 80% of my waking hours thinking about alcohol and drinking because of what I do, but I never, ever crave alcohol. And that's, I think, a key point. The thought of something entering your, into your head, the trigger, only leads to a craving if you start to fantasize about it and entertain the thought of having it. So I, I actually divide cravings down into different parts of the process. Obviously, the, tri- the trigger is phase one, where the thought enters your head. But phase two, and this is really the key point, what do you do with that thought of alcoholic drink? And if you start sitting there thinking, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have, you know, the glass of mulled wine on Christmas morning or the champagne or whatever it is, you're immediately putting yourself in quite an unpleasant situation because you're basically torturing yourself with the thought of something that you're trying not to have. And that's not a pleasant place to be. Now, that on, is, on its own is quite destructive. But I think when you, when you start to go into it even further, you start to understand how drugs can take such a strong hold of people. Because let's take Christmas as a classic example. Okay, it's supposed to be a really nice day. It's supposed to be enjoyable. And when you look at it on a basic level, there's not much to not enjoy about it. Okay, you get up, you have loads of nice food, nice non-alcoholic drink. You spend time in front of the TV with your family, opening presents. It should be a really nice day. Okay, but it's only a nice day if you're engaged in it and paying attention to it. Right. If you are shutting yourself off, ignoring everything that's going on, and just concentrating on this unpleasant internal tantrum, you might as well be sat in a prison cell, you know, for all the enjoyment you're getting out of it. So when you start to get into that cycle, the alcoholic drink becomes the difference between enjoying life and just suffering it. So we just don't, we're unable to enjoy ourselves without a drink because wherever we're in a situation where we want a drink and can't have one, we suddenly ignore, you know, Christmas, being on holiday, whatever it might be, you're ignoring everything that's going on and just putting yourself through this unpleasant internal tantrum. And that's why, you know, for a lot of people, problem drinking, smoking, vaping, comfort eating, whatever it is, may seem irrational, but it isn't. You know, who wants to live their life miserable and get no enjoyment out of it? The reason I gave up alcohol was because of that preoccupation. I realized that going out, I wasn't present in anything that I was doing because I was so conscious about where the next drink was coming from, what everybody else was drinking, how much I was going to allow myself. Like, do I have one? Do I have another one? What's going to cause me anxiety? When shall I stop? But of course, after one, I couldn't stop. But that whole preoccupation, that obsession with the craving is what eventually was just such a mind fuck that I just had to go, I can't do this anymore. This is taking up my entire brain. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. It starts to pervade into even when you allow yourself to drink. That's exactly right. So, you know, as it takes more and more of a hold, you have the drink, it disappears, but then you're thinking about the next one. And then after a few, you're worrying about how intoxicated you are and all the rest of it. So it actually starts to pervade into your life anyway. You're exactly right. How has your relationship with cravings changed since giving up alcohol? I I still crave things that aren't alcohol, absolutely, because I think, you know, it's helped a lot to understand them and sort of get a bit of a grip of them. But I think they, they kind of remain for other things. But I don't, I just don't crave alcohol anymore. One of the things I did when I stopped drinking, and this wasn't a conscious tool I put into place. This was just something I naturally did. And it wasn't until further down the line when I really started to unpick things that I realized how powerful it was. 
But one of the things I hated most about drinking was waking up at three or four a.m. feeling really, really anxious, exhausted, but completely unable to get back to sleep. When I made the link between alcohol and that insomnia and understanding that it was chemically induced by the alcohol, so unavoidable every time you have a drink, every time after I quit that I thought, oh, I'd like an alcoholic drink, I'd stop myself and just go through the reality and think, well, hang on, you know, you think it will be really nice. But when you have that drink, you guarantee yourself waking up at three, four in the morning, feeling anxious, really tired, but unable to get back to sleep and spending the whole next day exhausted. And I think what I did there was, because I did that over and over again, I conditioned myself that whenever I see an alcoholic drink, I don't see the fluffy fantasy of, ooh, isn't it nice to have mulled wine on Christmas morning? I just think, oh my God, that's horrible. I don't want to be waking up like that. And the key there, the reason it's so important is because... If we go back to what craving actually is, when the thought enters my mind now, it doesn't veer off into the craving, i.e. I really want this and start fantasizing about it. It goes off in a completely opposite direction, which is I'm so glad I don't have to do that anymore. So in terms of craving alcohol, I just don't anymore. It's funny because like, I have moments where I don't call it a craving. I just re- remember why I used to drink. It's like a memory of alcohol rather than actual. I know I don't want to drink and I know I wouldn't drink, but there's moments when the kids are going mad and I'm feeling tired and everything's kind of deteriorated throughout the day when I just go, ah, this is when I used to drink and I can register it as that and let it pass and and carry on with my night. And actually the only cravings that I do get now are memories of the reasons why I don't drink, which is actually a really good thing as well. So I think also you can kind of change those cravings into going, well, that's why I don't do it, because I don't want that obsession. I don't want that preoccupation. Yeah, absolutely. I think anything that diverts that thought from that fantasy stage starting to read, and I hasten to add as well, it is a fantasy. We create a massive fantasy around it. You know, we have this idea of kicking back with a drink and this idyllic situation, how perfect it will be. And of course it isn't. As soon as you have that drink, you're in much the same situation you were in the first place, only you feel slightly dull from the alcohol. I quite often say to people that there's only two times in your life that alcohol genuinely makes you feel good. One is when you're suffering from the after effects of the previous drinking because it creates that chemical imbalance and fills the gap it created in the first place. Um, And the other time is when you're craving, i.e. you've got yourself into this mental tiz, you know, this tantrum, and having a drink ends it, purely because, you know, if you're you're sat there miserable because you can't have something and fantasising about it, if you then start consuming it, you shut down that thought process and you can then engage in and enjoy what was going on in the first place, but you are unable to enjoy because of the craving and in many ways it's the same basic mechanism alcohol doesn't give it just takes and then partially restores but as you mentioned yourself you you then end up at the stage where even when you're drinking you're still so absorbed in the alcohol you're still not present in the situation anyway you're clearly someone who's given a lot of thoughts to cravings my current experience of cravings is when i drive past a mcdonald's and i see the golden arches i really want a mcdonald's now that craving lasts five minutes if I don't give into it. Typically, how long does a craving for alcohol last in your experience? So I've heard quite a lot of times some some, like people put a time frame on it, like it's 20 minutes or something. So ride them out. I, I like the idea of that. But for me, I found it being a thought process, it almost it lasts as long as you remain in that thought process. So I kind of like the idea that, you know, you, you maybe go into it and you kick the idea around constantly in your head and eventually your brain gets bored and jumps onto something else. And I think that's entirely possible. But I know for me it would, you know, for example, if I went to a sober event, I'd be like, oh, I want a drink and I can't, and I'd be pretty miserable. And there'd be times in the evening when I'd then forget about that. But I kind of keep coming back to it. So I, I think probably it's a very personal thing. I'm not entirely sure, but yeah, I've heard 20 minutes put on as a, a as a figure. If it is 20 minutes and you know that it takes 20 minutes, I think as you, the longer you are sober, I think you'd be able to get that down to five seconds. 
I think it would be like a process yeah. of where the longer you you've practiced like not giving into the distraction, the quicker it will be to let it pass. I know for me, it's a matter of me turning around and putting the kettle on and going, oh, yeah, I remember drinking, right, I'm going to put the kettle on and distracting myself straight away and not having to go through that process, just just learning over time what I can do to make that craving pass. It's Yeah, I think for me, going through the reality, because like I said, a craving for me is a lot about fantasizing. And I think reining yourself in and thinking about the reality can be quite powerful as well, and it can end it. Because particularly if you've gone a few days without drinking, what you're thinking about the alcohol will do for you is not the reality. Because like I say, so when you drink alcohol, your brain becomes oversensitive to counter the sedating effects of the alcohol. So when the alcohol wears off, there's that oversensitization is left and it, it manifests itself in kind of an unpleasant, anxious feeling. There's two ways to get rid of that. One is to wait until the brain chemistry gets back to normal, but the far quicker way is to have another drink. And that restores that chemical imbalance and makes you feel an awful lot better. When you've stopped for a few days, you may sit back and think an alcoholic drink will make me feel really, really good because it used to make you feel good when you were drinking regularly because that chemical imbalance was there all the time. But after a few days, that chemical imbalance is gone. So when you have an alcoholic drink, it doesn't do what you think it's going to do anyway. It just makes you feel slightly dulled and not very good. And this is why a lot of people, when they go off the rails, they go off badly because you have a drink and you think, that doesn't feel right. Do you have another one? It wasn't strong enough. I need more of them. So you end up drinking loads and loads of them. But that's something else to bear in mind. What you're, what you're thinking about, what's, you know, the lure is an illusion. So true. And all of those people that are thinking about Christmas Day tomorrow, I know that when I meet people, it's always an event or a day or, or something that they're, oh, God, this is where my sobriety is going to be tested. So they've got this fantasy already in their head. Well, it's going to be Christmas Day, so I'm going to have a few drinks and that's going to make things better. That's going to make my Christmas Day better. But actually what you're saying, that isn't true. And the reason you keep on drinking on Christmas Day because you have that first one and go, oh, Christmas Day is exactly the same as it was an hour ago before I had my first drink, I better have another one now to make sure I really make Christmas Day more joyful. Yeah, I think one of the reasons Christmas Day is such a big one for people is because, you know, let's be honest, we don't just drink Christmas Day, we drink Christmas Eve. So you wake up feeling awful, so it is really nice having a drink on Christmas Day because it makes you feel normal. But if you're not drinking anyway, you wake up in that position, you don't need a drink to feel good. And that's kind of like the, the basic physiological process that's constantly drawing us in with alcohol. It's particularly difficult, I think, with alcohol because people make such a big thing about it. You know, because so many people drink, because so many people need alcohol to enjoy themselves, people put this whole thing around, you know, get out the, the gla nice glasses and all these so-called fancy drinks um, and you feel like you're missing out on something. You know, it's probably very similar to 50 years ago where people would bring out their cigarettes or cigars after a meal and they would sit around there smoking. You know, it's a very similar mechanism. It's funny. It's like so much we talk about in sobriety, this craving in this case or any kind of infatuation with alcohol takes over the logical brain. Like you want that drink. But you know that it's not going to solve whatever it is you're looking for. I guess for anyone in the sobriety, avoiding a craving is probably almost impossible. Both of you have been sober for years and that thought still comes up whether or not you call it a craving or not. So what are the best ways to go over them? We talked about just trying to move your, your thought onto something else, try and distract it with the next thing. That's obviously easier said than done. Have you got any tips that people could use when they feel a craving come on? Yeah. So, so I think for me, and a lot of people, change, changing mindset is the key point because you know, we almost have two versions of alcohol. You have like society's view of alcohol generally that, you know, it's fun, it tastes good, it helps human bonding, you know, it helps to really put the icing on a cake on certain events. And then we have another view of alcohol. You know, it's a carcinogen, it tastes foul, it does nothing for you other than to make you feel slightly dull before leaving a feeling of anxiety when it wears off. It causes these psychological processes that um, are so unpleasant and then help you by taking that process away. So it gives nothing. Um, it just takes and partially restores. 
And you've got, so you've got these two views of it. Now, for me, the benefit of it is the, the latter view, the second one is actually the truth. So when you're in a craving, it helps to remind yourself of the reality, you know, because it's very easy, particularly around Christmas with all the paraphernalia around drinking to get sucked into the whole, oh, it's really good fun and I'm missing out on something. Yeah. I mean, Christmas is a trigger for many people and the people that I meet um, who have a period of sobriety and are doing really, really well, you can see that they're already going, oh, but it's Christmas, but it's Christmas, I'm going to have one. And no matter how strong they've been, there is this pull, which is due to so many reasons, as you say, due to tradition and due to ingrained habits and due to, you know, that nan's bottle of port that's in the cupboard under the sink that hasn't been drunk for a year. All of those things combined, it's like this whole kind of whirlwind that sort of draws you into the epicenter, isn't it? So you can't, there's so many things pushing you towards the drink on this special day. And especially people like annoying family members or that drunk uncle who has no idea how alcohol has been affecting your life. There's people pushing you towards it. And so the craving is just another thing on top, isn't it? With all these different factors flooding into you. It's such a hard time, isn't it, for everybody? Why do you think cravings are so powerful? If you give someone a basic choice, you know, would you rather live 20 years and have a normal, happy life or live 40 years and be miserable? We choose, I know I certainly would choose the 20 years. You know, (laughs) I don't want to live 40 years of misery when I can have 20 years of like a normal, happy life. And, And that's the problem with cravings. Like I say, when you are craving, you are not in a happy place. And when you are craving, be it on holiday, at Christmas, whenever it is, you're not paying attention to all the good stuff. All you're doing, you're taken up with this unpleasant internal process. And it's true for the mundane stuff, you know, like just week by week going out with friends, getting in from work and, you know, after a hard day and putting the TV on and just relaxing, you can't engage in any of it. So we kind of learn that, like I say, alcohol or whatever it is, the object of our desire is the difference between enjoying life and just putting up with it. And so, you know, like I say, these things may seem irrational, but they're not because if you have a choice between, like I say, 20 years of misery or uh, sorry, 20 years of happiness or 40 years of misery, we always choose, you know, to be happy who doesn't want to enjoy their life. And that's the problem with it. The, the great thing about it is, though, like I say, it's a purely conscious thought process and you can get to grips with it and control it. I think there's a few good tips we can give to people. When you're thinking about, like, for example, Christmas Day not drinking, it's really useful to put a plan in place before you get there. Because we humans, and I I kind of know this from my own experience, if you just turn up somewhere and make it up as you go along, you're having to think constantly about what I do in this situation or that situation. Now, if it's a situation like we're getting up in the morning, everyone's going to have champagne, and then you have to think about what you're going to do in that situation, you're, of course, going to be thinking, well, I could have a glass, or that would be nice, and you're immediately getting into that thought process. So what can be really useful is to get the plan in place. So decide what you're going to drink, you know, water, alcohol-free options, make a, you know, a, a virgin cocktail, whatever it is, but go through it all and have it planned out for the day particularly if it's your first Christmas, what you don't want to do is like leave yourself not knowing what you're doing and having to think about it. Because as soon as you start thinking, what are my options here? Of course, having a drink is one of them. So you start going down that thought process. So regiment out specifically what you're going to do, what you will be drinking, what you'll be doing on each occasion. And even if necessary, run through it in your mind beforehand so that you've got it all planned out. It's my first sober Christmas this year and we're staying in a campground with no phone signal and nowhere near any shops. So whatever the craving, unless I steal from a fellow camper, it should be all right. Oh, you know those campers though around (laughs) Australia, it's like massively ingrained culture over here is camping and drinking. So I think you'll be being offered a few drinks, so you better be prepared, Hamish. Why do we always crave things that are bad for us? It's always like sweets or cigarettes or booze. When was the last time we craved fruit and veg, you know, or like (laughs) a night walk? Yeah. It's always the bad. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is is the thing, though. Don't forget the craving is 
you almost have to deny yourself to get in the craving in the first place. There's got to be a reason to not have it. And if there is a reason to not have it, that's when you start obsessing with it because you can't have it. So that's, that's the key there. So it has to be something that you have enjoyed before and then you've not had for a while. That's the key to then have to crave it. Something you're denying yourself. That's so interesting. That's a really simple way of putting it, actually, because it's actually you denying yourself something. Like, you know alcohol's bad for you. You know chocolate's going to make you put on weight. All of those things. So, therefore, it's almost like a sort of delusional need for something that you know is bad for you. God, we're yeah. us humans are pretty weird, aren't we? <laughs> it, well, I mean, think of it. It's like one of the oldest stories ever told is um, Adam and Eve and the apple. It's you can't have this. Oh, well, in that case, I want it. What is the best way that you can avoid getting a craving? So the best way you can avoid it is, as I say, the thought enters your mind and it's what you do with that thought. So for me, changing my perspective of alcohol so I just don't see it as pleasant and enjoyable anymore virtually guarantees you not having a craving because you might sometimes it might sort of catch you on the hop a bit like you get off the plane on holiday and you see the bar and a cold beer and it's like oh that looks nice Mm. but most of the time you don't because you just don't see it that way anymore so for me that was the key it was just to understand really what alcohol was and when you sort of get under the skin of it a bit like I say a lot of it is illusion because you know, I kind of described the craving process, how we end up needing something to enjoy life. But when you start to understand it in those terms, it's like, well, it, it is just a placebo that the object of your desire becomes a placebo at that point. Yeah. You know, it's just to take you out of that thought process and let you engage in life again. And I think when you start to understand that, you start to understand why alcohol appears so crucial but actually isn't i think when you get to grips with all of that and for me certainly again tying it in with some of the more negative sides about it so you know i've already already described how alcohol ruins sleep okay and it does that for everyone and i think that's another important point we tend to look at people drinking and envy them whereas actually we need to reverse that because when I look at people drinking, I don't envy them because I just think you're going to be awake at three in the morning because <laughs> that isn't something that just affects people who drink a lot. That affects everyone who consumes alcohol. So I think kind of changing your whole approach to it really, well, certainly for me, that was key in getting to grips with everything. I think that does take time, like we spoke about before. Like for me, I didn't realize when I gave up drinking that it wasn't just giving up drinking. It's the longer you do it, the more you understand it and educate yourself on it. You see the bigger picture and you're like, oh, God, why would I ever do that again? So that's when you get really strong in your sobriety is when you look forward to Christmas. Like I look forward to Christmas now because I know I'm just going to have an amazing day. I'm going to enjoy all the things about Christmas that I love, which is opening presents and seeing my kids opening presents and seeing my husband's awkward face when my mum gives him a horrible jumper for the third year running. (laughs) Those are the things that fill me with joy now. And not to have those cravings be without the preoccupation is the joy for me. But that I think that does take time. And I think a lot of people listening to this podcast tonight on Christmas Eve will be in early sobriety and feeling, you know, on shaky ground and feeling nervous about this first Christmas without alcohol like you, Hamish. Mm. And I think just... Being able to understand the bigger picture and seeing that, look, it is all it's doing is going to make you feel shit. And it is a fantasy that, that it's going to make you feel good. Just thinking about that at the time and on the day and just sitting down for a moment or taking yourself out into the garden or going for a walk and actually thinking about the bigger picture like is a really, really good way to learn how to rid yourself from all of these thoughts about alcohol being the thing that you should do right now. Sounds to me like... Just giving up and going cold turkey is tough because then cre- cravings can come in and get a hold on you. If you do educate yourself, you do listen to a podcast or read a book like yours or go to AA, do a course and actually understand it, then that can help you like you did, William, reprogram your brain into looking at alcohol as something that's not to be craved, you know, that yeah. only has negative effects. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. Gosh, so what, what are you doing tomorrow for Christmas, William? We're just at home tomorrow. So my Christmases are always fairly, fairly easy. We don't have like loads and loads of relatives over. So it's always quite an easy one for us. 
and always try and get out with the boys as well to the park for a bit and go for a bit of a run around because that's always quite a pleasant thing to do. It is always nice when you go out and do something physical and then get back in. It's always quite nice. So, But I think that the thing is as well, it's, it's probably just worth mentioning, Christmas is different when you're not drinking, yeah. but it's different because you're enjoying the actual occasion rather than the alcohol. Certainly for me... Christmas was good and fun because I could just drink unrestrictedly all day. In which case, <laughs> bit point, I might as well just sat at home on my own and just drunk in bed or something, which is what it ultimately comes down to. Now, when you remove alcohol, that isn't there. So you actually start enjoying what is there, the actual real Christmas itself. It almost feels sad, doesn't it? I do feel sad a little bit about my past Christmases because, as you say, I always woke up on Christmas morning. You know, Christmas Eve in England, all your mates were back from uni, the pub was full. You'd always have the biggest night on Christmas Eve. And I used to wake up on Christmas Day feeling hungover and then I'd drink through it. And it just became a drinkathon. There was nothing else. There was no joy. I feel like now I'm starting to relive that childhood joy that I used to feel about Christmas growing up before drinking came on the scene and I think that's something that comes with sobriety it's a real I don't want to use the word blessing because I don't want to sound like a wanker but (laughs) you do feel more blessed about on Christmas day when you're sober because you get to indulge in all the joy of it which is lovely you know all those wonderful things that happen you get to appreciate it more but I think we talk a lot about yeah. how sobriety is an opportunity to reconnect with that sort of childish side of you. We talk a lot about that authentic joy and how it's not, you know, none of your emotions are governed by being drunk. You know, you're not making the highs high and the lows less painful. So I guess I see what you mean by that. And Christmas Day for a child is the greatest day of their life. Yeah. If, we, if I can feel anything close to what a five-year-old feels on Christmas Day. Yeah. And you have made it. But just think, Hamish. Like Hamish has got a newborn. He's just got a six-month-old baby. Uh, and imagine this yeah. Christmas Day. Like, n- now you've been sober for a few mm. months. Like, imagine waking up and drinking all day. You just couldn't do it, would yeah, you? Yeah. It would be, imagine waking up with a hangover, having to look after a kid all day, and it being Christmas Day. And you'd mm. have all of that joy ripped out of you because you're hungover, you're giving presents, and you just feel like shit, and you're probably running backwards and forwards to the toilet. There's no joy there, is there? No, 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 there isn't. I think that's another key point as well, because when we think about drinking on Christmas Day, we always think about the first drink because that's the drink that makes us feel good because we feel rubbish in the previous drinks and that's the one that makes us feel good. So we, we always think about that first glass of champagne or beer or, you know, mulled wine or whatever it might be. We don't think about the 15th when you're slumped on the sofa comatose at, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, whatever time it is. And that's the reality of Christmas drinking. And again, that's what I'm talking about. Think about the reality. When you're drinking at Christmas, the first couple of glasses is really nice, but only because it's making you feel as good as you felt before you started in the first place. And then the rest of the day, you're just sort of slumped around comatose, not really doing much of anything. You know, you eat, you fall asleep on the sofa. People don't fantasise about the latter part of the day when they're kind of had quite a few drinks and they're just not feeling much of anything. And that's the trouble with alcohol. It dulls everything. So it might dull the bad, but it dulls all the good as well. So many people all over the world. Like, it's like, actually, people that this isn't making you feel better. Like, you almost want to shout it from the rooftops, I guess, which is why you do everything you do and why we do the <laughs> podcast and everything. It's because it's like, look, people, look at the reality of it. Look at the fantasy. Like, that one drink, it turns messy. It's not as simple and straightforward. It isn't joyful. It's actually really ugly. It's not, it's not a great thing to be doing for anybody. And it's funny how I was so sucked into that and how we're all so obsessed with alcohol and this booze worshipping culture in which we live it is so annoying (laughs) yeah it is if you ask a room full of people you know hands up who thinks alcohol you know night out or christmas or holidays are more fun if you have a couple of drinks everyone puts their hand up but if you say to a room full of people who is reliant on a chemical substance to such a degree that you can't enjoy or cope with life anymore no one puts their hand up but it's the same question you know what I, mean? I love you have it. This really warped view of alcohol, and it's yeah, ridiculous. That is such a simple and good way. That is why I love your writing. That's because that's the best quote ever. One of the reasons we wanted to get you on the podcast to pick your brains about cravings is not only you know a lot about sobriety, but also I understand you've just written a new book about smoking as well. Tell us about that. 
So that's that's a jointly written book with Annie Grace. So we've kind of melded our two approaches um, to talk about yeah nicotine and vaping in particular. Um, we've both of us got younger children, and there's just so much going on with vapes at the moment, and you know it just massive and certainly over here in the uk there's been a load of stuff in the press about people marketing disposable vapes specifically for children these are like illegal vapes that are flooding the market Mm. um so yeah so we've kind of like i said melded our two approaches and um, applied it to nicotine addiction so starting to look at that hopefully (laughs) do some small thing to try and turn the tide on that side of things as well because that's just becoming ridiculous it's such a tech product and therefore Mm. really appealing younger generation and the problem is like with alcohol the younger generation i sound really old talking about the younger generation but they're turning (laughs) away from alcohol less and less younger people are drinking which is a great thing but more and more of them are vaping and and one of the terrible things is you hear over and over again people saying i would never smoke but i will vape so these are people who their, their, their gateway into nicotine and addiction generally are, are vapes because, yeah, as I say, like it's really appealable to younger people because it's this nice tech product. What did they find out? Have they Do they know the effects of it yet? So we don't know. They don't. I mean, it's the bottom line is, so cigarettes have got lots and lots and lots of bad things in them. Vapes supposedly don't. But the fact of the matter is they both have nicotine in them. Hmm. So at a very basic level, you can say, well, is nicotine good for you? (laughs) And surprise, surprise, it isn't. And I guess also what you're doing by vaping is creating an addiction, therefore creating a craving for something. Yeah. What we're talking about right at the beginning about how, you you know, you, you, you crave alcohol, chocolate, you know, all the bad stuff. For me, that's all about a learned coping mechanism. So everybody has bad days and there's different ways you can deal with it. You know, read, exercise, meditate, go for a walk, talk to friends, whatever it might be. Or you can choose to consume something to change how you feel. And obviously we're talking about alcohol, nicotine, chocolate, blah, blah, blah. I think whether you're looking at alcohol or vaping or whatever, you're immediately teaching yourself, when I have a bad day, I will try to consume something to change how I feel. And that tends to lead you off on a destructive path because you may end up drinking too much and you quit that, but you adopt that same concept. So you start vaping more or eating more sugar or all the rest of it. William, I actually got an email a month ago, which I've been saving in order to put to you. So I don't want to reveal the name of the person, but I'll just read it to you because they've asked me my thoughts and I feel like I'm in no position to answer, but you are probably almost definitely in a much better position than me. So they write, thank you for your podcast. It's literally saving me from excess currently. But my constant question or excuse is I only smoke when I drink. I hate smoking when sober. Do I drink so I can smoke? A little background is my past life is mirroring yours. I'm clearly an alcoholic. First time I've said that, maybe to others, I say I have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol, but when I drink, it means I can smoke and then I drink more and it's a whole waterfall of allowance and then it all feels so good. I've tried to Google this, but how do you separate the two cravings? Almost like my brain wants a cig, but I won't get that unless I drink wine. Mm. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so this this is quite an, uh, quite an interesting one and you quite often get people who drink and smoke but won't do... Usually it's, I'll have a cigarette when I drink and I won't have one unless I'm drinking. Mm. There's a few different things in there worth mentioning. One, that nicotine is a stimulant, okay, so it tends to sit quite well with drinking because when we're drinking, it's a sedative. So it's almost like taking... <laughs> taking the two to get back to normal, if you like. It's that kind of weird situation. But it also, I think, opens up the whole thing about, because quite a lot of time people will, certainly in the early stages, only smoke in certain situations. But it's kind of like what I mentioned before about when you start craving, you're allowing yourself the possibility, it's allowing yourself the possibility of having it. What you can quite often find is people who are, physically dependent on alcohol so they go through the entire withdrawal and relieving the withdrawal process on quite a quite a deep and significant scale but they don't drink during the day and they're okay with that it's when they get to wine o'clock you know that time in the evening and 
People can struggle with the concept that they're addicted because they wake up in the morning and they don't drink and they go a significant part of the day without drinking. But don't forget, addiction isn't just the physiological, it's that psychological craving process. And with alcohol, more than any other drug, we have these almost arbitrary rules about when we can and can't do it. So for a lot of people, smokers, for example, when they're regular smokers, it's fine for them to wake up and have a cigarette or hit the vape. Whereas if you're a drinker and you do that, that's like a massive no-no. You know, getting up first thing in the morning and drinking is like a huge issue. So a lot of us, we will wake up in the morning we will feel rotten from the previous night and we would feel a whole world better if we had a drink first thing. But we don't drink in the morning, so it doesn't even enter our periphery of consideration, if you like. So we don't crave it in the morning because we just don't drink. So we don't start fantasising about it or thinking, well, it'd be really nice to have a drink now. And we drag ourselves through the day But when we are allowed to have it, that's when the craving kicks in, because when it gets to four or five o'clock or lunchtime or whenever it is you allow yourself a drink, that's when the craving kicks in, because that's when you start thinking, oh, I can have, oh, wouldn't it be nice? Oh, I'm so miserable if I can't have one, blah, blah, blah. So it's a similar thing with smoking. So you have people who they won't allow themselves or it just doesn't enter their consideration to have a cigarette at a certain time unless they're drinking. So you have a drink. And then, of course, the thinking about smoking kicks in and it all comes in together. And as I say, it kind of ties in quite neatly anyway, because they're stimulants and um, depressants, stimulants and sedatives. So they cancel each other out. So you're having the two of them at the same time. And it's just about habit forming, isn't it? It's like you just correlate the two together. So therefore you create the craving yourself. So that lady, she's actually creating that because Mm. that's what she wants or that's what she thinks she wants. So amazing. Is there there an easy fix other than just not drinking? (laughs) What, What advice can I give them other than you just don't have that first drink? Yeah, I think that that is the answer. Um, And it is, you know, it's it's a difficult thing for a lot of people. But, you know, that's certainly the the advice I would give people. Mm. Um, You know, I I can explain in a lot of depth why drinking is not what you think it is and hopefully change people's perception so that they find quitting either, you know, easy and enjoyable or certainly easier and more enjoyable Mm. than it might otherwise be. But I can't ever advise people to continue or mm. try and moderate because it's inherently difficult um anyway and it is a lot of the a lot of the thing when you introduce one drug when it leaves it starts to leave that unpleasant feeling so you're constantly reaching for something to repair that damage and that's particularly too, so, so so like smoking is a stimulant and it, if you smoke more than you're used to, same with caffeine, it leaves you feeling a bit untight, uptight and unpleasant. So, you know, when you have too many coffees in the morning, you have that unpleasant feeling yeah, from too much yeah. caffeine. An alcoholic drink will take the edge off that nicely because it's a sedative. Mm. So if you start smoking cigarettes, alcohol goes very well with it because it takes the edge off that unpleasant feeling. So the nicotine starts to wear off and you're smoking another one and another one. But as the stimulant builds up, you're left feeling more and more anxious. So actually, again, that's why the two of them go quite well together, because they take away the unpleasantness of having too much of the other, if you like. I mean, there's people going to be listening to this who can't ever imagine giving up drinking or giving up smoking or giving up, you know, the quality street on Christmas Day. But I think we both know, and I think what Hamish is learning is that it is possible to stop drinking and to enjoy Christmas Day and to not have cravings and to actually look forward to these big events and and look forward to being sober. Because I think, as we have both found out, there are no downsides to stopping drinking. It is only good results. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think... When you've been through the last 20 Christmases or whatever, drinking all the time, it is going to be different and change is something a lot of people are naturally adverse to. Another thing that can be quite helpful for people is try to, and I know it's quite difficult, but try to sort of take a step back emotionally from it. So I used to find it really interesting, like you did the other day, to almost go out and think, right, I'm just going to do this thing and just observe 
like a scientist or something and just see what happens. And it's really interesting going out watching people drinking lots of alcohol just to look at them. Yeah, it's brilliant. I actually really enjoy it. It's kind of like (laughs) fantasy. It's like, wow, God, this is... In, this is like I need to be writing this all down. I need to take a notepad when I, when I go next time. It is yeah. it's really interesting. Yeah, you can do a similar thing with yourself as well. You can just study what's going on. So, so like, just say to yourself, "I'm going to go through this Christmas day and not drink." And if it's a really miserable, awful day, that's fine. I can start drinking straight afterwards and go back to normal. But just go through it and just yeah. see what happens. Yeah, we know it won't be. It'll be a good day, I promise. That brings us back to the English pubs at Christmas. I could still go back to the English pubs and I could sit there and I could just take note of the debauchery around me. Yeah, you don't need to not go or you don't need to not be involved. You can still be there and you can still, you know, observe what's happening and enjoy it. Just because you don't drink, it doesn't mean to say that you can't go to the pub and have fun. You can. You can still go out. It does take a while to get your head around it, but you can do it. It's fine. William, we could speak to you all day about this but i feel like we've we've taken up enough of your time but thank you so much for sharing your insights good luck with the new book and have a wonderful christmas tomorrow thank you you too and happy christmas everyone wow that was the most incredible insight. Yeah, we want to thank William for being here today, all the way from the UK. And don't forget that his amazing course, Alcohol Explained, is available on the Cuppa Dot community. And with your Cuppa 10 discount, you can get all 78 modules for about £38. It's a bargain, and this course is essential if you're new to treading this sober path. It so clearly explains the truth and science behind booze. So I'm going to finish the podcast today with a quote. It's from Matt Haig's book, Notes on a Nervous Planet. He says, The cravings for the thing is rarely met by the satisfaction of getting it, and so we crave more, and the cycle repeats. We are encouraged to want what will only make us want more. We are, in short, encouraged to be addicts. Oh, that's so true. That's a lovely quote. I like Matt Haig. He's a he's an English writer who writes a lot about his anxiety issues that he's had in the past from living in Ibiza. It's really oh, interesting. Tough yeah, it's got, place to live yeah, yeah, especially if you've got panic attacks, you'd just be on a cycle of trying to cure the pain, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Yeah. So a big thanks to William Porter today because we always get such huge amount out of every time we speak to him. And he's a bloody sober superstar. Thanks, guys. Have a Merry Christmas, a Merry Christmas Day, and you'll hear from us on on New Year's Day. If you're questioning your relationship with booze, you're struggling to moderate, or your hangovers are causing anxiety, it might be time to reach out for some support. Yeah, just talk to a mate about how you're feeling, contact a local doctor, find an AA or sobriety group. Fick's got one. Yeah, just head to www.cuppa.community. Remember, if you're questioning yourself, it might be time to seek support. Even though this journey can be awkward, it is definitely worth it. And if you've enjoyed the Sober Awkward podcast, don't forget to review it, rate it and share it with your mates. Do they have to share it with their mates? Yeah, of course they do. I'm not doing this for nothing, Amish. Bloody hell. How do they share it? I don't know, just write it on.